Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. Somehow, we are already eight months into 2023 and it has been one crazy year so far. It certainly has. At the time of recording, the school holidays are just about to end and the summer is winding down. So we thought we'd take the chance to look back on key issues in energy and in climate of the year so far, our highlights from the pod, and look forward to where we think the big challenges and opportunities are for the rest of the year and beyond. And joining us today is long-time friend of Local Zero, Dr. Jeffrey James Edwin Hardy, <laughs> Director of Sustainable Energy Futures Limited. <laughs> Jeff has very kindly taken time out of his busy holiday schedule to join us for a chat about all things local and net zero. So if you haven't already, please do subscribe to Local Zero wherever you listen to your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod or on Mastodon at hashtag local zero pod and check out our website localzeropod.com and if that doesn't satisfy you you can always email us at localzeropod at gmail.com so jeff welcome you've you're dialing in from holiday that is commitment for sure i hope you're having a nice restful time i am and it's uh, of course anyone would interrupt their holiday for this show <laughs> setting the standard there <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming to you from uh, from Whitehaven in Cumbria. And you're a Cumbrian lad, right? So you're, you're back home. Yeah, I'm Seascalian. I'm from Seascale over on the coast. So it's kind of like the, uh, the most beautiful and uh, abandoned beach in Cumbria. Yeah. Um, because it's right next Lovely. door to Sellafield. Good. So yeah, Seascalian and Sellafield does all sound a little bit sci-fi, <laughs> actually. But um, listen, I'm really happy to... Happy to have you in because we've got a lot to cover off here. 2023, what a year. And normally we do a kind of stock take at the end of the year. But I think by popular demand, we've probably got enough content from the first eight months to do a stock take for the year. Is, is, that, is that fair? Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, dear me. You know, Matt, I was, I was thinking about, um, about this when we decided to do the stock take and thinking just about what we'd done on the pod, like let alone all of the wider, you know, goings on in, in our 
research lives in the policy world and so on, just thinking about the pod. And I actually forgot about three months worth of the episodes that we yep. did and just assumed that they'd happened <laughs> last year. So yeah, so much to think about and to get through. Exactly. And this, I guess this begs the question, what some of our favourite episodes have been from the past year? And Jeff's going to select all the ones that he was a guest on, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um <laughs> And a co-host. Of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Becky and I co-hosted an episode. Yeah, Not just a guest, Moved up Jeff. A there you go. Where were you two lazy boys, Matt and, uh, and Fraser? <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to point our listeners towards some of our favourite favorite pods over the year. I mean, it's, it's been quite difficult to, for me to, to whittle this down. But Becky, I think you were quick off the mark when we put this round last night and said, right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you t- two of my favourite episodes. And actually, it's so hard to just choose two because I actually put out loads more than that and I'm sure we'll talk about them but two I really really enjoyed was the last episode the one just before this so I think episode number 76 um all around water and the water industry and I just thought that the interview that we did with Hugo was absolutely fascinating and what I really loved about it was how tangible it was you know I think sometimes when we're talking about energy we can just kind of get lost in the invisibility of energy. If you're not looking at that wind farm or if you don't live next to an energy from waste plant or you know solar panels on your roof, you can sometimes just get lost in the invisibility. But especially for me, I live right by the sea and it is there, it's part of my day-to-day life. And so it wasn't just that the issues were critical and that there was a pathway to action that we could take, but actually it felt like something I could really you know, grasp hold of and, and have like real conversations with anyone about yeah i mean jeff that's where you hail from that's where you are now i mean you know is water is this something on the you know this is not a pun by the way but this is something on the lips of you know folk you know round about where you are now is, is water do you see this as a real dividing line at the moment um well i mean it's it's so in the news right it's kind of um you know fergal sharkey for example has been um brilliant in leading the campaign i saw there was a a first law case going in um, to claim compensation for um, sewage um, in action in the news today. So, I mean, yeah, I grew up in Seascale, so I, and we grew up right at the front as well. Um, so looking out on the sea. When I, when I left Seascale and went to York University, I couldn't sleep for about three months because I couldn't hear the sea. Um, it was really odd. Um, but you can see, see, out in the sea, um, <laughs> All of the energy stuff going on as well, because it's like if I go on Seascale Beach, yeah. if I look right, um, I can see Sellafield, mm. and if I look left down to Barrow, I can see four enormous offshore wind farms. Yes, um, yeah, and then can. if I look straight ahead, that's where that coal mine's going to be. Hmm. Yeah, you know, so there's kind of like though it's because it goes under the sea. Um, this crazy coal mine um, in Cumbria. Yeah. Um, so it's just you know it, it's all there. Right in front of you. Yeah, and I mean, Jeff, you've you've done a lot of work electricity networks. I know in the past you've you've, as you say yourself, you're a recovering regulator, having worked for Ofgem. <laughs> so one of the big things about water, I think, that kind of came up in our in our pod with Hugo Tagum was, you know, this uh, privatization of the sector. Now I'm not wanting to get into a big debate around that, but you know, this this is does seem to be a sector where privatization hasn't hasn't worked, <laughs> and you know, with your your hand in uh, electricity networks and all the rest. Um, yeah, just whether there's a mm-hmm. whether there's any lessons that we might be able to to share because it feels like the water industry is in in dire need of of some pointers. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a fair point. There's several trends that are probably true in um, monopoly networks that have been privatised. One is 
over the course of that privatization, I think the regulators and the industry have learned a lot about which incentives work, um, how to get the right sort of behaviors, how to get the right level of customer service and all of that kind of thing. Um, but we've also learned that, you know, probably the interests um, between the public and the investors, the shareholders, are not mm. terribly aligned. You know, obviously on one side, you've got a desire for kind of like shareholder benefit maximization. On the other side, you've got essentially a bunch of essential services, you know, be it transport um, or water or electricity or gas, you know, all of these kind of like energy vectors, et cetera. So um, I think we are going to hit a crunch point on this, you know, particularly given where we're at on cost of living and on, let's call it public attitude towards excessive profits um, and poor service. We're going to hit, I think, something quite serious soon. Yeah, and, it, and on the water quality one, Becky, that kind of struck me that is a really interesting one, um, and I've probably sort of sent a sort of grumbly tweet this morning around this, the water quality one is something that's cut through in ways that we haven't seen other policies or, sorry, issues cut through, such as air pollution, for instance, and, and ULES, and and maybe you can dig more deeply into climate. But the um, certain sections of... of uh, political parties and certain sections of the media have been very hard on certain subject matter, such as ULES, not really dug at water quality in the same way. It seems to be something that's got cut through, right? You know, if people when people calling for cleaner rivers, oceans and lakes, that seems to be kind of generally accepted as something that is okay to call for. Well, I think people calling for cleaner air is also accepted to call for. It's just the the flip side of that and looking at the ultra low emission zones, you have, you know, challenges around what that means for people's day to day life, uh, mm. perceptions of injustice, whereas I don't think that comes through those kind of potential negatives, um, you know, come through as much with the water water debate, the real impact seems to be on those who are currently polluting so it feels like there's yeah okay there's not that kind of wider space around it right but you know for me i think that's one of the reasons that i really enjoyed the other episode that was kind of top on my list which was the one we did with kate bradbury looking at our gardens and it felt to me as well that the conversation there was all very positive in the sense of this is something that people can take real agency and ownership over whether you have like a massive field out the back of your house or even if you've just got a window and a window box um but everything felt very you know practical here's some advice here's what you can do it didn't sort of feel like there there was a lot of um conflict or tension or negatives in and around all of that as well so i really enjoyed that episode too yeah, there's something I want to pick out there from both of what you've said. So this this notion of, you know, I think the, the, where, where we're at with the water debate is there's a problem and there seems to be a groundswell of of appetite for a solution. But there isn't, and the, the finger is kind of pointing at industry and government. If you look at ULES, we're kind of at the point where I think it's fair to say there's been a kind of round table between industry and government and they've, there's been a sort of a settling on their, their, their needing to be some kind of solution. I mean, the, the low emission zone in London and other cities, these are not new things. The ULES is, is an expansion of this. But the finger is kind of them pointing back and saying to the consumer or the citizen, you now need to change or this will happen. And going, to, if I can link this into gardens, it's like, well, actually, the, the kind of the agency, there's an opportunity rather than it's 
instead of somebody telling you you have to do this in your garden, you can choose to do it. So there's 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 where the responsibility lies and whether it is demanded of you or kind of quietly and politely requested of you. And I feel like those are big dividing lines at the moment too. I think that's a, a really important point. And I, I think it's important to caveat that with as well, that actually we know that there's a, a general sort of widespread public understanding of the need for changes to happen around around energy. It's not just that when we're asking people to do something or change the way they do things, it's not that people automatically go, oh my God, no, that's that's terrible. You can't make me do that. It just makes it a much, a much more likely wedge issue for people on either side of that debate to then to then raise conflict around that, which is exactly what we saw with you, Les. There was very little reporting on the ground within um, Uxbridge about what are the actual real issues here that you have with the ULEs, or is there something else about this election? The amount of coverage on that was minimal versus jumping the shark completely into a rejection of green policies. So I think where you're involving people who are overwhelmingly supportive, supportive of green policies generally, but when, when you involve people in a way that they might have to make a change, that makes it easier to drive wedges into. Not to say that there isn't some, you know, potential pushback or concern about making those changes and not to say that there's not a need to make sort of justice and fairness central to that um, but it, become, it becomes much more politicised when it becomes about people making changes versus the water industry which is quite an obvious not to simplify it too much but quite an obvious goody baddy common thing that we all want to see we don't have to do much in the middle it makes it much easier to to um to take sort of more decisive action on that I suppose. Just a just a quickie on top of that as well, it, between the air quality and, say, the water pollution, I think one of the key things is that it's really obvious when sewage has been spilled into mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's visible, mm-hmm. it's visual. Um, whereas air quality, you know, the implications are really obvious, but you can't always see it. You kind of, you're standing back from London and see the haze over the city. The other thing is, um, it's something we might delve into later, but... Um, ULES, it's not a bad policy. You know, it's aimed in the right direction. People are supportive of air quality, but the implementation and kind of like, you know, the the way in which people were aware of the implications and the help that was offered was really poor. You know, so you've seen kind of like, you know, extending the kind of car scrappage scheme um, after the event. You know, that's, that's not how you do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why I think we might come back to that later is there's a really live debates now about hosting energy infrastructure, you know, transmission lines in wherever, Scotland, Norfolk, wherever it might be. Um, And, you know, they're going to hit the same issues unless we really think about how we want people who are hosting that infrastructure to perhaps benefit from hosting that infrastructure. And more widely, I just want to do a shout out at this point to the phenomenal live episode that Fraser and I co-hosted earlier in the year um, (laughs) that was all around energy smart places, but actually how we can make sure that these really support that broader just transition outcome and making sure that things work with people and communities, not just being done to them. You know, absolutely, uh, whether you're talking about infrastructure, whether you're talking about other policies, I think that is the approach that we need to be taking. Yeah, all of this points to the need for timely and in-depth and and deliberative participation and and sort of co-development 
with with communities, right? So there's you know there's colleagues I've I've heard from over the past year uh, during 2023, the likes of Jen Roberts, Caitlin Hafferty at Oxford, um, uh, Tavis Potter, Aberdeen, all of them talking about different methodologies for engaging with communities and hearing from them when you're developing these policies, Jeff, like like ULES, um, and clearly like with ULES. Which I completely agree. You know, if you wanted to cut air pollution deaths, this is this is a really really important policy. But to extend that car scrappage scheme on the basis of what we heard after it was implemented, or it was about to be implemented, I should say, seems like they hadn't done the engagement because mm-hmm. they they'd heard and they acted. Now whether they were hearing from the community who were asking for the scrappage schemes or or commentators representing communities, I, I you know rightly or wrongly, I don't know. But they they felt it enough to change the policy. So, so we need to get really good at engaging with the right communities at the right time when we're developing these policies. Otherwise, we see backfire and a vacuum is created, and then you can see a kind of uh, rolling back. Fraser, I, th- I think that's crucial, Matt. And I think the if, if it's not fair, it won't fly. I think that's fundamental to everything that, that we're trying to do publicly just now. And we hear sort of pushback relatively often from often from well-meaning people you know working in the, the net zero space in the energy sector about you know if we try and do everything fairly or if we try and engage extensively it's going to take ages we don't have lots of time but actually ULES being a good example and it's not the only example and um, we've seen it with for instance you know the, the hydrogen village trial rest in peace in in Whitby where if you're not willing to take that time and work with people really really closely you then face the very high likelihood of having to redress the mistakes you've made from not doing that in the first place later down the line. And also in turn, you know, seeing resentment, seeing resistance to these ideas more more broadly. For optics, it's not great. But I guess most fundamentally, if you want to do it fairly, you want to do it in a way that benefits people and gets you over the line sustainably, effectively, it has to bring people in at the earliest stage. It has to be meaningful and it it has to be fair and be seen to be fair. Yeah, I just wanted to add a tagline, rightly or wrongly, to what Jeff said. It's not what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. You know, and and that that notion of (laughs) it's it's the the lead up process to the policy and then also the policy itself, but the objectives of the policy, cleaner air, you know, that's kind of I haven't met, yet met anybody who doesn't like cleaner air. So how how you do that is the question, and and that feels like that was lost in the ULES debate. Fraser, some of the things you were pointing to there is that we we cannot lose sight of why we're doing this to cut cut carbon emissions and also to cut air pollution. So we're saving people's lives who are living on these arterial roads. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> For now. Very valid rant. Absolutely amazing rant. I think it was good. But it's just one section of everything we did. So any other key things that we focused on this year that we think were particularly important or great? I mean, Matt, what were some of your favourite things looking back? Well, I, I had a few. Oh, I will I will flag one, but then speak about another. So I really enjoyed pulling together the carbon offsetting for communities work. Um, worked a lot with our producer, Patrick, on, on doing that. We ran a, a summit in, in March to understand how nature-based carbon offsetting is, is really starting to change uh, the highlands and islands of Scotland, not just Scotland, Wales as well. Jeff, you're going to talk a little bit about Wales hopefully later, um, and, and increasingly in England too, uh, New Woodlands, new uh, peatland restoration too. Uh, communities, we've seen this with energy, caught in the crosshairs and, and rather a bit of an afterthought, I would say, in terms of where investors are. But increasingly, for all the reasons we've just outlined, very much on the, the tip of people's tongue. So I will just flag that. There's a four-part series. Listeners, 
if you haven't dug in, do so. Um, but the one I'd, I'd like to maybe, I wasn't expecting um, to really change my, my way of thinking was the decarbonisation of live music. We heard from Music Declares, Lewis Jameson, but also colleagues at Tyndall Manchester like Carly McLachlan and Chris Jones. And that was really, really like, it just felt like it was a whole sector I hadn't really thought much about. But, you know, the carbon footprint of, of music is real and it's big. It's not just the carbon footprint, it's the ecological footprint. But what the, the, the abiding takeaway I got from that was there is a lot that can be done outside of the regulator, outside of the government. Um, and a lot of emphasis there on the acts and the fans. And that there's a lot of shared ground around wanting to live in a greener, healthier future. And music, as we know, has been the driver um, of major cultural change over the decades. And I think it has a massive role to play in climate, but it needs to lead by example. And I thought Lewis pointed out, uh, and Carly pointed out some really exciting examples of that. Um, so yeah, when I go to a gig now, I think very differently. As and when I get the time, which is rare. <laughs> I was going to say. When I do, yeah. I'm there thinking mostly about climate change, which probably isn't the most relaxing thing. There we go. The, the live episode of Energy Rev was a lot, a lot of fun. It was a great panel. It was a great audience. There were lots of great questions as part of that. And it was just a nice couple of days, that, that conference. But I really enjoyed a few weeks ago the episode we did on rights community action mm -hmm. with uh, Naomi about very much grassroots um, standing up to whether that's you know standing up to coal mine developments, fossil fuel developments, or standing up for um, sort of net zero developments or developments that people see as providing big opportunities in their community, like actively helping community organisations and people participate in hyper local democracy around these very much global issues. I thought was a really fascinating and again, like you'd mentioned, Becky, one of these episodes with extremely tangible, you can go out and do this kind of stuff now if you want to. I thought it was a really, really good episode and a really sort of empowering type of episodes for um for us as well as as well as listeners too. It was also our 75th episode. So, you know, woo, um always nice to to kind of mark those things out. But I, I agree, <laughs> I thought that, that was a really, a really great episode. And just I was so inspired hearing Naomi's story of how she had got involved and was then really, you know, driving work in this space and working with different communities and bringing new skill sets. So, uh, uh, you know, reflecting on a lot of these challenges being around some of the legal aspects, you know, things that perhaps people in communities may not even have the um, the skill sets or the abilities to deal with. So I really, I really loved the way she brought her, her passion, but also her expertise to support very exciting work going on. I think taking that and, and sort of reflecting on 2023, you know, we, we make a point that if if you dwell on the the bad news, you can quickly, you know, become disillusioned and 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 lose that fire in your belly to you know make a change. And what I've liked uh, about some of the pods that we've covered this year is that there are a lot of good news stories out there. There are a lot of really bright, really committed, really experienced people. Who were making a change? I mean, you know, take Lewis on the music um, uh, um, episode. You know, he has he has decades of experience working in the music industry, managing really high-profile bands, and here he is pushing for a change to decarbonise the music industry. Brilliant! Like we we want more of that. Um, you know, Kate Bradbury um, teaching the, the the every person about how to fundamentally. Um, improve the ecological footprint in their garden 
in really basic, basic terms that anybody can pick up. This is good stuff. I and mean, if we don't have this, I think we're, you know, we are in the wilderness. And again, no pun intended. So, Jeff, <laughs> I'd like to know, you, you know, you have a slightly more in, in perhaps impartial or unbiased perspective. Like looking back, is there anything that particularly stood out for you in the year so far? So you say unbiased, but probably the two that stand out for me were the two that were involved in, um, or rather, um, so the first one that we did together with, on the distribution network operators, Becky, that was that was really interesting, kind of like a bit techy in places, but kind of like some really important questions about the role of, you know, your local electricity networks and networks generally. I thought that was that was really good and it's probably a lot of the things that we learned in that are carrying through into a lot of the discussions that are going on politically and with the regulator etc and then i also i did enjoy the um the energy rev live one back in march wasn't it it was back in march um end of energy rev sob because it was just it was a it was just lovely being around all of our colleagues for that last time um having everyone together but it was also just a really positive end to it it was kind of like it almost like a call to action it's like you know look we've learned an awful lot over the last four-ish years about how you might kind of like develop these local energy systems that are more in tune with local values and delivering benefits locally now how are we going to crack on and do it mm. that was i, I really like mm. that um i think i did slip in yeah. a question from the audience never knowingly kind of like not involved when i when i've got a chance on that i mean one of the one of the yeah. things that came out of that whole event um i said it on a panel at the time was that as a relatively grumpy person about kind of like energy policy um i decided at that point to form a self-help club um <laughs> and that's just kicked off so we have a collection of grumpy frustrated energy policy people um, who get together and kind of like a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. We just, you know, sit there and say, you know, my name's Jeff. This week I'm grumpy about X. So, um, and of course it's an anonymous group, so I couldn't say whether or not anyone on this particular podcast is involved in it or not. <laughs> no, you couldn't, no. And uh, <laughs> no, but I, I love this idea of having some energy grumps, these sort of grumpy wonks who, are, you know, for been seen too much you know that they they're now at the point where they really need to self-soothe um okay so so now jeff we're going to give you a, a platform to be grumpy but also to be very um optimistic uh maybe too so just sort of maybe reflecting on 2023 so far it feels like 2023 has been as busy for energy and climate as 2022 was for politics generally and um i don't know why that's fair but so you've got plenty to pick from <laughs> <laughs> any any highlights, lowlights, um, and thoughts about what you know what this means in the bigger picture? Oh my god! Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, what have we got? We've got um, we've got once again undeniable impacts of climate change live on everyone's TV every day of all sorts. You know, whether it's ice melting faster, grease burning, you know everything storms um it's all there laid out before everyone's eyes so it's it's right up there in the public conscious um we've had high energy prices 
pervading through the first half of the year now starting to come down a little bit, but still approximately twice as high as they were before the crisis kicked in, which means we still have a significant poverty crisis ongoing, you know, with high inflation alongside all of that and with high interest rates. So there's there's a lot of pressures. Yeah. So it's kind of like you've got pressures all over the place. And in the context of that, it feels like we're at the the tricky bit of net zero, particularly from an energy perspective, which is we're continuing to make a lot of progress on electricity. Although with inflation, I saw that one of the offshore wind farms has been put on hold, for example, because they cannot deliver it for the mm. for the incentive, the, the contract for difference that they've agreed. So it's not cancelled, it's on hold. But that's, you know, these things feed through to each other, right? So even what we call the easiest bits of the energy transition, the decarbonisation of electricity, is suddenly becoming a bit trickier. Um, we'll get on to all of that new transmission lines um, and the impact with public, I think, later. But then at the same time, you're starting to, to see this um, impact in public of things that need to happen as well. So we've talked briefly already about the hydrogen trial, you know, and the absolutely wrong way to go about public engagement that that one went through um, and therefore got massive pushback. We've had the ultra low emission zone, you know, becoming a political issue, but really at heart, it's a badly um, communicated and um, delivered, um, but acceptable policy. And then we've, um, we're having kind of like wider issues around kind of like the ability to put infrastructure in place, like charging infrastructure or connecting anything to the grid at the moment. So much of the grid is full right now. Um, there's partly that's an issue with um, connection queues, um, but partly it's an issue that the grid is full. You know, so we have to wait for it to be upgraded. So there's that's slowing down everything from new housing development to electric vehicle charges to new local renewables to you know whatever that's going to be connected to the grid. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And then the final thing is we're in the middle of what feels like the busiest energy policy schedule I've seen for Yonks. So you've got the entire review of electricity market arrangements. Um, cracking on, which deals with the supply side of the energy system. So the generation and how that is passed through to customers, ultimately market structures. You've got finally something starting to move on retail market reform, but more of a call for evidence than a call to action. Um, you've got the local governance work that Ofgem is um, working through at the moment, which is thinking about putting in place um, some sort of regional coordination body to help help meet where local energy plans meet national energy planning and kind of like smooth that through. Um, you've got um, thoughts about how you um, increase the transparency and availability of different flexibility markets. You've got the potential of a flexibility exchange coming in place. Um, all at the same time, all without any form of master plan about where it is we're actually trying to get to. You know, all right, we're going to get to net zero. That's the kind of like the, the key thing, but we don't actually know how 
we want to get to net zero. So all of these things are mm-hmm. pretty much operating in silos as well. Can I get up on this soapbox with you? I am so grumpy about some of this stuff <laughs> and I've been wanting to vent for like months now and I, oh, you I should have join been a holding club. it in. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Like, I feel, I mean, this lack of direction just feels like we're floundering. We're talking and talking and talking, but we're not seeing action because we've got nowhere for that action to go. And we are just going to miss the boat on net zero if we don't move fast enough. But the one thing that really, like, I've got such a gripe about is around heating and buildings. And I just, I mean, when I saw the um, the energy security strategy come out earlier in the year, I mean, I, I really wanted to write a blog about my reaction to it. But I think I'm even now still so emotional and so angry about that. But I'm finding it difficult to, to get my words down in a cohesive way. But I just feel like we have this we know what we need to do I mean we've got the vision we've got the direction from the um, climate change committee we know what needs to happen with clean heating we know we need retrofit and we know the speed and scale we need it and we are lagging we are the worst in Europe and it is shocking how bad we're doing in this space and we don't have the finance and the business models. I mean, just to see that the only policy support there is an extension of the boiler upgrade scheme, which, by the way, I did. And I consider myself to be, you know, a relatively decent earner. Like, we, we, we're we in a good financial position. I had to borrow money just to be able to get into that scheme and are now in debt. So how most people are going to even be able to contemplate that, I don't know. Um and then with retrofit, there was just a focus on support for like some number of thousands of households. I can't remember the exact number, but we've got something like 7 million in the UK that need addressing. So just so shockingly poor in terms of the policy support, despite we know actually for that one, we know what we need to do. We don't have the skills and supply chain to deliver it. And I've seen my husband try and get into the industry and just how difficult it is, how undiverse it is, and how unsupportive it is of a div- of diff- people coming in from different backgrounds. And ultimately, like I, we look at all of this and where we need to go, and then we look at what can be delivered on the ground practically. And so I'm, I'm with Octopus Energy, and I've talked countless times on the show about how brilliant and how much I've enjoyed being with them and how great they are. But two things have been going on now for, what are we, eight months? So two things have been going on for eight months. One, they still can't connect my smart meter properly. So I've got a SMETS2 smart meter, should be able to get readings. It's not connected. I have to do manual readings as if I had an old dumb meter. Um, So how then I can participate in any of these amazing new flexibility schemes, I don't know. Secondly, I did the right thing, right? I moved away from gas. I am still paying gas standing charges because despite having asked on multiple occasions for my gas meter to to be removed, it has not been. And so like, surely those are such basic things that even when we have the direction and the vision and we know what to do, we cannot get it going on the ground from some of the most innovative players in the industry. Okay, ran over. Like I've done. That was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I think both both of you fantastic there because I think you outline so many of the, the key issues. So I'm going to add in another uncertainty, but I think this could potentially be good or bad news, and I'm not quite sure which. So Jeff Jeff has outlined this this avalanche of policy consultations, these these expectations that we're going to have to make some interventions over the over the coming months um certainly you know not just right across that energy supply chain from from licensing you know whether it's oil and gas or providing licenses to to offshore wind all the way through to becky what you're saying about how we actually you know bill for and charge for power in people's homes 
But we have a general election. The expectation is May at the moment, May 2024. That may change. It could even be one as early as this autumn. We, we don't know at this stage, but we do know that they've got to run one by, I think, January 2025, um, and it's likely to be earlier than that. Now, what industry loads and investment is uncertainty um, and if you have certainty about high carbon or certainty about low carbon, that, that can ten, tend to kind of grease the cogs of, of investment. At, at the moment, we kind of have uncertainty over everything. And that's compounded by the uncertainty of political uncertainty. So we have economic uncertainty. We have political uncertainty. Uh, on, on another level, we have kind of sociocultural uncertainty. I think there's quite a lot of changing um, or at least, you know, um, values that people are maybe revisiting and you know trying are being challenged by by others friends and family there's there's just we're in a period of flux like massive flux and it feels like until we kind of iron some of this out jeff we can't deliver and becky from what you've said we can't deliver these massive massive infrastructural changes retrofitting almost every home that's currently standing uh, building out a transmission distribution network across, you know, Virgin, you know, not Virgin Land, but areas we ha we don't have it, doubling, tripling our offshore wind capacity. How do we do that in this, um, in, in just this this atmosphere of uncertainty? And and does does a general election help or hinder that uh, in over over the over the coming years? Difficult to say, but there we go. Yeah. So there's 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 two things. There's a lot of things, but I'm going to start with two things. So one is um, Professor Catherine Mitchell was right, um, and I'll explain that in a second. Is that the title of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, I think so. You, you'll you'll well, have to yeah. explain to, um, to some of our listeners. Yeah, yeah. I, I will, I promise. And then the other thing is um, this lack of vision. Um, it's actually linked to Professor Catherine Mitchell. So Professor Catherine Mitchell... Um, Exeter University, Falmouth campus, she led a project called iGov, which was thinking about kind of like governance of the GB energy system. Um, a few years ago, I had the privilege of being on the advisory board when I was at Ofgem. And one of the issues that Catherine really, and her very brilliant um, team of researchers around her and collaborators, one of the things they put their finger on was um, countries that have got um, a really stable political consensus on energy and climate change um, tend to have kind of like quite progressive and long-term policies and a positive vision um, that is generally acceptable to the population. So Denmark's an example of this, but there are others as well. So what we, we actually have take aside all of this culture war nonsense, because it is just going to be a, a flash in a pan, um, purely with the election in mind, just trying to put a small wedge between, you know, various parts of society. It, it's, it, it is a distraction. You know, we have a very strong public acceptance of the need to do the right thing on climate change. Um, that has been solid and in the most part growing over time. What we need to be able to do is to enshrine that into an apolitical vision of where we need to be as a country, where, where a positive vision of where the UK wants to be once it becomes a zero carbon economy. Um, you know, and what you're really doing there is kind of like 
bringing together all of that useful information we already have from the public, from, you know, from industry, from everything about kind of like what's required and what people um, expect of that future system and what they're prepared to do in order to achieve it. And what Catherine said, um, which I think is really important, is then you need to give that delivery to an apolitical body um, in order to kind of like to get on and do it, um, get the politics out of the way um, and basically get on and do it and only come back to the politics if something tricky occurs. So um, in, in the iGov work, it was something called an energy transition commission. So, you know, this is a body that would take a lot of information in from, say, Climate Change Committee, from National Grid, et cetera, kind of like then, and also from kind of like the politics to say kind of like, this is how we want you to deliver on this and then set out plans, deliverable plans, you know, proper plans, um, you know, that kind of like put you targets, you know, not just for say offshore wind, but for everything that you need to do and mechanisms to get it done, you know, and to be able to then assign out responsibility for those to the bodies that can deliver, you know, whoever it might be, kind of national grid, suppliers, generators, um, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's getting the politics, getting that consensus on politics, because, you know, there isn't, you know, bar the kind of like very fringe um, elements, there isn't a lack of consensus on climate change. No, and Jeff, let, yeah, go on. I'm, I'm, uh, let me just add, add a bit of flesh to that, because you, you're correct, and YouGov takes constant kind of polling on this so just just to add a few numbers to that i love that you've always got numbers <laughs> well i think in this in this point it's important so roughly a third of the population or the sample of the population identify environment and climate change as one as one of the three top priorities for for politicians to tackle okay and that's above issues such as housing brexit crime education and if we look at in terms of the level of belief around climate change actually being an issue that we're driving 70% believe in climate change which is human driven 17% believe it's happening but they're not quite sure what's driving it or that they don't believe it's human and there's about 13% who either disagree or just unsure so you've got 70% who believe this is humans driving this and a third of folk are identifying this as one of the top 3 priorities and that and that there's this is incredibly consistent over the last few years so that's the backdrop to what you're saying in terms of that political, that mandate, if you will. 52% of people voted for Brexit. We're seeing you know, polls time and time again pointing to people having an appetite to tackle this. So, so having an apolitical body to get on and do this seems like a very sensible suggestion in my mind. Yeah, but of course, politicians don't like to let go of energy. It's an essential service. It is political. There's security concerns. There's all that kind of thing. So, you know, it's difficult to get to this point, but fortunately there is experience from other countries, albeit relatively small populations, um, that it is doable. Um, so that, so yeah, it's kind of like, I'd, I'd love to know from experts in political economy about the right way in which you could make that palatable across the parties. Because that just feels like one of the most important things just to get rid of so many uncertainties because that's exactly your point Matt it's kind of like uncertainty drives either business as usual because you know you stick with what you've got um, or makes you really nervous and therefore 
um, money becomes very expensive for other things. You know, it's kind of like uncertainty always drives up the cost of capital, right? So it's um, that's you know, there's a there's a strong link um, between how much something costs and how certain you are about it being delivered as well. So that that's it's just so important um, to reduce because we're not uncertain about cracking on and doing stuff. You know, we're not uncertain as a population that we need to do something. What we're uncertain about is whether or not you can trust a political direction. <laughs> I feel like this is clearly something we might want to focus on. Perhaps, perhaps there is a future episode coming up all about this. Um, I feel like we've talked quite a lot about where we see, where we've enjoyed, you know, stuff that we've done so far and where we see some of the big challenges I mean maybe uh maybe final reflections from each of us on what we think we absolutely need to focus on for the rest of 2023 whether that's in our own lives the policy space or even um future local zero episodes so uh Jeff do you agree, like priorities and what we've been talking about? Are there any other areas you think we should 100% be focusing on? No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about priorities and I'm going to be shameless in talking about the thing that I'm most excited about at the moment. So um, at the moment, uh, announced Tuesday, I think it was. Um, what day are we on? Yeah. Um, the Welsh government, um, or rather Plaid Cymru and Welsh Labour um, through a collaboration agreement, have announced a new energy company called Unicumry Energy Wales um, to be established in order to essentially help drive smart local energy systems in Wales for the benefit of local Welsh people and um, Wales more generally. Um, and I have the privilege of being an advisor to that project um, for the next year or so, working with local partnerships um, to get that company scoped out and then get it delivering. And it's super exciting. Um, it's, there's lots of things we think it'll do um, that we're working through what that looks like, but really it's kind of like helping um, maximize the productivity and efficiency of existing assets in Wales, like community energy assets or local assets, you know, energy assets of one form or another, a wind farm, a solar farm, a battery, uh, electric vehicle charging. But then learning as much as we can across the whole of Wales about how those um, assets currently operate and then seeing what options we can start to bring forward to maybe get them working together um, in integrated energy systems to drive more value back to those communities and also improve the productivity of the whole Welsh energy system. So you can get more low carbon stuff connected faster um, and kind of like hopefully drive down bills. Um, for Welsh bill payers as well, ultimately. Um, so it's just brilliant coming out of Energy Rev um, and looking at kind of like all of these projects trying to do stuff that the Welsh government, um, or rather Plaid Cymru and Welsh Labour, have put this as a priority. Um, proper exciting. So yeah, stay tuned. Um, it was all, all over the BBC and Sky News and um, from the Welsh government themselves yesterday. Very exciting, Jeff. I look forward to hearing more about that. Fraser, your priorities for the rest of 2023, any key things you think we really need to be focusing on in our work and, and on the pod? 
Um, I don't think it's going to be any massive surprise for, for listeners and for you guys to hear me bang my drum in the corner here. Um, but I think what we've what we've seen over the last the last let's say month maybe maybe two months in particular are are two things happening in in tandem. The first is that there's a, a clear and present understanding of the urgency of the climate crisis, of the direct impacts. They're feeling much much closer to home, appreciating that they've you know they've been very very severe for a long time around the world. But they're feeling very close to home and people understand it. And we know, Matt, from your lovely figures that, that people agree with the need for widespread climate action. What we see on the, the other side and the, the second thing that's happening is the rubber is meeting the road in terms of what we're asking people to do in terms of more direct impacts in people's lives of, of the net zero transition. But the backlash from that has been... In, in many ways sort of manufactured, but the, the, the backlash from that doesn't feel as sharp as maybe we'd been worrying about it being previously, again, because people understand the need to address these issues. But what we're, we're seeing from the kind of, I guess, the collision of these two things is that, that political, well, not the political, but the public consensus that Matt and Jeff have both talked about, but a real clear understanding that to get this over the line, it has to be done in a way that's fairly, and it has to be done in a way that brings people along for the right. The advantage of that, that doesn't, of course, that's a challenge. It's not going to be easy or happen, over, or happen overnight. But the advantage of that is that when you're thinking about how do we do net zero in a fair way, in a way that's sustainable and with people, you then open up a massive plethora of other good things that you can do. You can start to bring down bills. You can start to think about improving homes and improving health outcomes, improving social outcomes. And that for me, while it feels a bit chaotic and maybe a little bit jarring just now, some of the conflict and narrative around it, that for me is incredibly, incredibly exciting. So my, I, it's not so much a manifesto. I think you guys set out material things that are really exciting and really positive that we can all all be focused on. But for me, it's about keeping sight of that, that bigger picture vision that we have now, that big opportunity that we have in front of us and advocating for that anywhere possible because I think it's what's going to get us over the line and I think it's what's going to get us to a point where not just the net zero thing which we have to have to do crucially but we can do so much other good um, in the in the process as well so that's my that's my pitch um okay deep breath from me um what do we do so I've got a few pointers I think we need to really shift away from what we're going to do and where we're going which seems to be a lot of the discussion at the moment to how we're going to get there how we're going to get it done. So this is a lot of what Jeff said about, you know, it's delivery. The time for deliberating, you know, in terms of percentage cuts and, and years and targets, we've, we've done that. Okay, so let's get it done now. The second is how we can galvanize support for climate, um, to tackle climate change into climate action at all levels. We've seen citizens, I've just made the point a moment ago about the iGov and there's various other polling, including government's own through Desnes or what was originally the Bayes Attitude Trackers. It's there. So so how do we how do we translate that? And that's all about what Jeff said. And I think what Labour are starting to, to point towards there in terms of a vision, um, a, gr a vision of a greener, brighter, fairer world and you know i was very happy to see kistama come out in, in in sunday in a response to some of the issues we've talked about actually laying that out didn't agree with everything in there but it was it for me it was a big step forward particularly it being in uh, in the times too third 
listen to citizens and communities, engage with them, co-develop, but cut out the noise. There's there's a whole lot of noise. Again, go back to the ULES. You know, there's there's there seem to be a huge amount of pull from certain quarters after the Uxbridge and Ryslip uh, by-election, and that that I think there was a you know, kernels, there were nuggets of of value there that were you know coming from communities. But you know we need we need um, a, a standardised best practice platform to hear from communities and citizens and take that as gospel, right? Not just one in, you know narrator's interpretation of another interpretation. This gets very lost very quickly. And the final point is call out the negative, but spotlight the positive. So we see mounting protests the likes of um, Just Stop Oil, XR. And I won't go into where I, I particularly stand on that on a personal level, but I think it's important to call out the negative where it is, but that must be coupled with spotlighting the positive. And that's what we're trying to do on the pod a bit more, is spotlight the positive. And if you can go hand in hand with that, if you can call out the negative and spotlight the positive, you offer people a way forward. There we go. That's my manifesto. Thank you. Yeah, here, here. I think for me, it's really about thinking things through from the perspective of those people who are at the sharp end of making change. And actually, if we take two kind of major issues that I think we probably have not addressed enough and that we need to address, one being heating and what clean heating and better buildings look like, and the other being our food and what we're eating and the links between food and climate change. And both of those things are where we need those right policy and enabling environments but actually to create change what we're doing is we're asking some number of millions of people across the country to all be making change there and so I think in both those instances there's huge challenges partly around awareness and knowledge and understanding and misinformation and when you start to look at things practically on the ground how do you take someone that is perhaps not acutely embedded in these debates on a journey from you know, living in a home that's probably leaky, that probably is quite high carbon intensity in terms of the heating, in terms of people that might be, you know, eating uh, in a way that is not, you know, perhaps the most environmentally friendly. How do you take people on a journey, recognizing where they are, what they care about and where they have agency to change through to something that is in line with the vision of what we have for a net zero future? So I, I definitely think we need to put more attention on, on that piece and, and how to support people yeah. where they they are, the agents of change. Make that change easy and fair. Yeah, really important. Mm-hmm. Right, well, there you go. I hope that was cathartic. I hope we've got it all off our chests. I feel a little bit better as well. You have all been listening to Local Zero. Um, please, if you know anybody who might enjoy it, word of mouth is a very powerful tool. So why don't you suggest our podcast to them? And you can listen to the likes of us blethering on and our very special guest, co-host, friend of the pod, Jeff Hardy. Absolutely. And do remember to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform. You can find more on our website, localzeropod.com. And if you haven't already, do follow us on Twitter. Lots of great chat there at localzeropod. Uh, you can email us, localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share any longer thoughts. We have Mastodon, hashtag localzeropod, numerous ways to get in touch with us. 
And please do respond to us and let us know what you think about our priorities for 2023 and if you have other things that you'd like us to focus on as well. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, Jeff. Enjoy the rest of your holiday. Thanks. I will. (laughs) Thank you.